You know, whenever a visiting pastor comes in, there's always the danger, and this is a joke among pastors, that it's good to have guest speakers, but after they leave, you always have to clean up their mess. <laughs> because sometimes, you know, without knowing it, we'll say something or maybe look at something that's a little bit different. And uh, I try to tell groups this when I come. I'm here as a guest, uh, as a guest in your house. Uh, I respect the rules of the household uh, to the best of my knowledge and ability. And so always remember that uh, if in any way I have uh, said anything contrary to what your pastor has taught you, he is your shepherd and you follow him and be faithful and loyal to him because uh, it may be nothing more than an apparent difference. But sometimes as a listener, you think, oh, well, that's not what I heard before. Uh, just chuck that in the bin and disregard it and uh, show your loyalty and your faithfulness to the man that God has chosen to lead you in every way. We're in the third chapter for those of you who have just joined us of Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, we have been looking at a book that deals with the calling and the combat and the coronation of the Christian warrior. The calling is outlined for us in chapter 1. The combat is primarily dealt with in chapter 2, although it bleeds over a little to chapter 3. And then in chapter 3, we look for the coronation. And what do we mean by that? Uh, an old illustration that I've used for years and years and years. You're a child of God. You were on the path from the cross to the crown. <clears throat> that pathway is your life. You know, it's kind of like I use the illustration if you look at a gravestone and it has the birth date and the death date of the person and in between is a dash. And that dash, that simple little symbol, represents their whole life. Everything is summarized by that dash. Between the cross of your new birth and the crown when you stand in his presence, the question is, what are we going to do with the time that we're allotted? It may be long, it may be short, uh, whatever it is, it is planned by God and arranged by him from before the world began to give you and I enough time to do what he has planned for us to do. Now, <clears throat> sometimes I feel like Dennis the Menace, you know, there's a, a picture of him where he says <clears throat> something like, uh, I've been in so much trouble, I can't remember, it just comes to my mind, but I've got so many things to do, uh, to do today that I'm going to have to live for a hundred years to get everything done or something like that. Sometimes we feel that way. Uh, life can be demanding. Life can be distracting. There are many, many responsibilities that we have in life, but we need to recognize and understand that all of those demands all of those distractions, all of those responsibilities, all of the circumstances really that are part of our life were taken into consideration by our Heavenly Father. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. Uh, he knows the sidetracks that we're going to take, but he has given us enough time if we'll wisely use our time to accomplish what he intended for us to accomplish in putting us here on this earth. David writes in the Psalms and says that the days of my life were recorded in your book before there was ever one of them. 
God knows and has prepared for the moment that we enter the world and for the moment we'll depart this world. And that is all a part of his marvelous plan. So as we come into chapter three and we start looking at how can I make a difference here? I have come to Christ in faith. That's my calling. My calling is to believe the gospel, grow in grace and truth, and serve God in whatever ways he opens up for me. And so as I'm growing and as I'm serving, what are the things that are going to make a difference when I stand in his presence? Because believe me, while we may put that off and not really focus or concentrate on it too much, all of your life is going to matter when you stand in his presence. You've probably heard people say things like, in 50 years, what difference will it make? Well, if you're in the presence of the Lord in 50 years, it's going to make a big difference. Because it's either going to be right or wrong. It's either going to be good or evil. It is either going to be something that is laying up for you treasure in heaven or costing you some very precious eternal reward. So as we move into 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing, as he says in the first couple of verses, to remind us, to make us mindful of the fact that our life matters and that we're here for a purpose. To remind us that while there may be scoffers who are going to come, there are going to be mockers who are going to say, Christ said he would come again. Where's the promise of his coming? And we probably all have heard this from friends, neighbors, relatives, and others. If we look around at the world, if you can read the scripture, if you can study the prophecies of the end time and look where we are today and not see the correlation the striking correlation between what is going on in our world and what the Lord Jesus, the apostles, and the prophets told us is coming, I don't know how to help you. If you think what's happening in the world right now is normal, and I do realize that there is a psychological condition called the normalcy bias, and the normalcy bias inclines to think that things will always continue as they have. Did you see what Peter said here? Verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He says in verse 5, for this they willfully forget. It is a voluntary, willful ignorance on the part of anyone who can say history is not going somewhere and history is fulfilling the words of the Lord and the prophets and we are moving in a direction toward a destination. For you and I who have believed in Jesus Christ, that destination is the rapture of the church. The Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2 and started something entirely new. It was called the church, the body of Christ, soon to be the bride of Christ, had never existed before. And those who believe in the time in which we live have spiritual provisions given to them that were never given to Old Testament saints the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ. Why do we emphasize the importance of water baptism after a person believes in Christ? Because water baptism is your living testimony to the fact that in being united with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, you share in His death, burial, and resurrection. And it's the first step of discipleship because it's not only a test of obedience, it's a test of your testimony or the beginning of your testimony. And so we 
we recognize the importance of studying and learning and growing and understanding God's word. Why? Because that train that we're on is moving faster and faster. I like to be a preacher of security, not insecurity. I love to be a preacher of comfort and not fear. But sometimes the only way you can get people to take the comfort offered is to shake them up a little bit. And I want you to understand that our world is on the brink of war like we have never seen before. Our world is on the brink of economic collapse. I read one uh, academic this morning who said, by the end of this coming week, the American dollar could be worth nothing. I don't know if you're aware that nations are dumping the American dollar right now. They no longer have confidence in it because we have destroyed the value of it. We have run the printing presses to the point where the printing presses are burning out. And I know that the mockers are there and I know that the scoffers are there and I know that they'll say, oh, this will never happen. Well, that's to those people Peter's speaking. Wake up. There is a tremendous need for a wake up call in our country. You cannot promote every form of sexual deviation and perversion. You cannot incorporate into your national leadership every crime conceivable by man and expect the nation to escape the judgment of God. All right, so that's the wake up call. That's the shake up. And I see some of you smiling and I'd like to see your face when it happens. You have a normalcy bias and you think it can't happen. It's coming like a freight train. Uh, call me up when it happens and, and tell me. But you won't need to because we'll all know. You can live in New York City today and make $100,000. Do you know how much of it you get to keep? 30000 30000 The rest of it the government takes. Try living in New York City on 30000 by the way, I think according to recent estimates, one of the best places to live where you keep the most of your money is Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know why, maybe Elvis is still there. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter says, it's not all doom and gloom. For those of us who are in Christ, we just sang the song. By the way, those of you that are mu musically inclined, that song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me, do you know when that was written? Anybody know? That is a beautiful song. That is one of my favorite songs. And I think it may be a fairly recent song. I don't think it's an old hymn. And I'm thrilled at that because it has so much content in it. And so many of the songs that are being written today have no content. It's like, I love you. I love you. By the way, Lord, I love you. I love you. You know? And it's always about me. I. I kind of judge songs based on how many times it says I, me, and my, and how many times it says the Lord Jesus and my Savior and my Redeemer and God, my Father, and things like that. What is the emphasis of that song? But that song expresses the fact that however dark and dim and difficult the times in which we live, it's only more exciting for you and I to be alive fulfilling the plan of God. Do you realize that there are so many people on this earth today? About 8 billion. By the way, we have probably reached peak population because the population is actually in many, many places beginning to decline. 
Do you know what that means? Do you realize that more than half of the people, think of this, try to comprehend this, more than half of the people who have lived since the crucifixion of Christ until today are alive right now on this earth. Do you understand that? More than half of the people in the last 2,000 years are alive right now because of the massive population explosion. Do you know when I was born in 1950, there were about three and a half billion people on this earth. And now we're over eight billion or somewhere around eight billion. That in just my lifetime is more than that total population and billion. When you're talking billions, if you have a billion dollars, someone described it to me the other day. If you had a billion dollars, you can give away a million dollars a day. And in a year, you're still got cash on hand. We don't realize the numbers that we oftentimes throw around. So if that many people living on the planet at this present time with all of our capabilities of communication with the Internet and with the ability to communicate with people, what opportunity there is for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And our task from the beginning has been what? Go into every nation and preach the gospel. Make disciples go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, I can tell you that we have been to the uttermost parts of the earth and we've come back. And I can tell you that in those places, people will flock. People will come by riverboat. People will walk across deserts. We've had people that travel for three days across the deserts of western Zambia to come to a Bible conference thinking that there would be no food there for them to eat. And they and their families would join us for three days of Bible teaching. And they came across the desert in rags. I can't find too many people in America who do that. Little did they know that when we went in, we had taken bags of flour and bags of corn and that we bought a bull to be slaughtered. And those people were eating better who took that tremendous journey to come and join us than the folks that stayed home. But they're hungry for the word. People's eyes are being opened in India, across Asia, throughout Africa. You cannot imagine the hunger that exists over there from people just to hear the word, much less in their wildest imagination, to possess a Bible. They treasure what we take for granted. They'll sacrifice to spend time like we're spending here this morning. And so Peter tells us, as we get back into the text, beloved, verse 8, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. As I said in the previous class, Jesus said, I'm coming back to receive you to myself. How long has it been since he said it? Two days. We need to think like God thinks. Just a short time. When he says in the book of Revelation, behold, I come quickly. He's coming quickly. Amen. Say, well, he hasn't come for me yet. Don't worry, you may not make it through the end of the day. Amen. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. And I can tell you that there are many people I have known who scoffed about the fact that the Lord's coming soon. They're no longer with us. Guess what? He came for them. Whether he comes for all of us at once or whether he calls our name and our ticket is punched and our days come to an end. Time is short. 
Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The eyes of a loving Heavenly Father look down on this earth and behold the ways and the needs and the cries and the heartaches of men, and His desire is that more and more will be brought into His kingdom. Why does God do what He does? One thing always above everything else. You know, the center point of history, we live between the eternities. Eternity past, eternity future, future, and the central focus of all of human history comes down to the cross of Jesus Christ. And God the Father, as a loving Father, as a faithful Creator, looks down on the heartache and the sorrow and the misery and the suffering of men just as Jesus did as He walked on this earth. And his desire is not just to alleviate the pain or the sorrow or the suffering. His desire is to win that soul for eternity. And that's why you and I are here. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Notice he says, the day of the Lord will come. Now, the day of the Lord is an Old Testament term that specifically refers to the second coming, not the rapture. I don't know if Peter had read Paul's epistles yet to understand the rapture of the church. Remember that it was not revealed to anyone else. It was revealed to Paul until, of course, it was revealed to John in the book of Revelation. So the day of the Lord is the second coming. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. By the way, when Christians say to me that the Lord's coming as a thief in the night, I say, not for me, he's not. Not for me, and it shouldn't be for you. Hold your place here and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's pretty important that we be accurate in our understanding of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, after he taught the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, he turns from the rapture, which happens here at the end of the church age. Church is caught up to meet the Lord in between the rapture and the second coming is the tribulation period. And so he says, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes, second coming, second, we call it second advent. The day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. For when they say, they're going to say it because you and I are not going to be here, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Why do we have a burden to win people to Christ? Because a time is coming that they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Why should the day of the Lord not overtake us as a thief? Because we're not going to be here. We're not in the darkness. We're in the light. And we're going to be taken up to the Lord. Verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others. Let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those that get drunk, get drunk at night. Let us who are of the day put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. 
Wrath, by the way, is a technical term for the tribulation period. Paul uses it twice in 1 Thessalonians. He has not appointed us for wrath, but he has appointed us for deliverance. And that deliverance that's going to come is to obtain salvation, deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we will live together with him. Have you ever heard this statement? If you're out of fellowship when Christ comes, you get left behind. If you're in sin when Christ comes, you're going to get left behind. That passage just blew that whole idea out of the water. You may be a vigilant, awake Christian, or you may be sleeping in carnality, but the fact that you belong to Him makes all the difference in the world because when He comes, He leaves no one behind. All of His children will be gathered together in His mighty arms and taken into the presence of the Heavenly Father. So back to... Second Peter, if you will. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now that doesn't happen at the second coming. We're getting into a lot of eschatology, eschatology being the study of last things. That doesn't happen until the end of the millennial reign or the kingdom. Of Jesus Christ. So what does that tell us? The day of the Lord lasts for a thousand and seven years. It's all considered one day. The day of Christ is a different designation. That refers to the rapture of the church. And it happens in the twinkling of an eye. There are two days that are end times days. The day of Christ. The twinkling of an eye. A split second. The day of the Lord. A thousand and seven years. I think I have some notes for that for you on that, but I'm not going to turn to them right now. Stick with me here in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Living in a world on its way to judgment, what kind of a person should I be? I ought to be a person in holy conduct and godliness. Holy conduct and godliness. How is that expressed in human life? Three things. Number one, humility. We are naturally arrogant by nature. That's our problem. You know, when you spell sin, I is the central letter. The center of sin is I. That's why Paul said, in me there dwells no good thing. So we start with humility. Who brought humility into the world? Jesus Christ. Did you ever stop and think that our God is a humble God? He is a condescending God. When Jesus stepped down out of the throne room in heaven and entered into this world, he humbled himself because humility is an expression of the character of God. The second thing is servanthood. If you want to be godly, if you want to be holy, be humble and be a servant. And then third, dedication to the plan and the purpose of God. Those three things really combine the essence of what he's talking about here. The kind of people that we should be, that we should be holy and godly, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. I want you to notice in verse 12 the word hastening. 
You want the Lord to come quick? Then speed it up. How can we speed it up? You actually have four things in your notes in the middle of page 20. You can speed it up by your prayers. Jesus taught the disciples in Matthew 6.10 to pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray for it. Number two, by our witness. The plan of God is redempting. He is delaying for the salvation of souls. And therefore, as you and I win souls to faith in Jesus Christ, we are hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Number four, by our lives. Peter challenges us to live expectantly, and this alone is a witness to a hope, hopeless world. Your cheerfulness, your stability, your confidence. Listen, if everything around us collapsed tomorrow, would the foundation of your life be gone? If you lost everything tomorrow, would the foundation of your life be gone? Or would you continue to stand on the firm foundation we just sang about it. Though he leads through the deepest, darkest valley, I know that he is with me. I know that he is my shepherd. What did David understand? All of you know this. Psalm what? What's the most popular psalm in the entire world? Psalm 23. What's the most popular verse in the entire world? John 3.16. What's the most popular parable in the entire world? The parable of the prodigal son. Why are these three things so popular? I'll tell you why. Because they are clear, they are simple, and they are absolutely definitive. The Lord is my shepherd. The Hebrew literally says, the Lord is my shepherd. I want not. What more do you want? What more do you need? He will be with us. He will be faithful. Don't look into the future. When we look into the future and we fear, it's because we forget the God of heaven and earth is with us. He is going to lead us. He is going to guide us. He is not going, God is not going to be sitting up there wringing his hands saying, oh, what do I do? The economy just crashed. <laughs> How in the world am I going to provide my wife and I have seen around the world God miraculously provide for his people, God miraculously leading his people, God miraculously protecting his people in difficult, dangerous circumstances that they live in every single day of their life. And you know what? They're happier than you are. The happiest people that we have ever met, the most joyful people we have ever met have nothing. But they have everything. Because their faith, though they know very little, many of them don't know even what I've taught you in this short weekend. They have very little understanding, but they know one thing. They know that the cross settled the issue of their eternal destiny, and they know that the Lord is with them and loves them, and they're carefree people. So therefore, hastening, we hasten it by our prayers, we hasten by our witness, we hasten by our lives, and finally we hasten it by supporting and involvement in missions. We were given a command. You say, what is God's will for me? Very simple. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's a command. What part can I play? What part can I play? From Jerusalem, that's this church. Judea, that's the surround, that's Texas. Samaria, that's Oklahoma. <laughs> right? 
or maybe Arkansas, depending on your, you know, it's always funny. When we were in Kansas, we made fun of the Okies. I had friends in Oklahoma, they made fun of the Arkies. When we moved to Arkansas, I noticed that everybody was making fun of Mississippi. I think Louisiana was at the bottom of the, of the ticket, I'm not quite sure, but the funny thing was, everybody has someone to look down on. And in reality, we're all the same, aren't we? We are just poor people made rich by the grace of God. Let's hasten the day of the Lord by being involved in ministry. Notice that he says, nevertheless, in verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Can you imagine? That may not seem very appealing to you, but let me try to describe in my very limited vocabulary what it means to live in a world where righteousness dwells. John does a good job of it in the book of Revelation. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Why? Because there is no more crime. There is no more sin nature. Can you imagine being free of the sin nature that haunts you through your whole life? Can you imagine being in the presence of people who have no sin nature? I know it's going to make it difficult for you to recognize people because without our sin nature, we might look like a little skinny beanstalk. <laughs> what happened to you? You used to be big. Well, I lost my sin nature. <laughs> Can you imagine living where there is never a tear, never a cause of a heartache? What is righteousness in the eyes of God and in the mind of God and in the thought of God? Righteousness is a free and full and healthy and hopeful and joyful and cheerful people. And that's what we look for. And that's what we're promised. So we're looking for <clears throat> and hastening that marvelous day. And then Peter wants us to learn something. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and without blemish. You know, it's very interesting that uh, John talks to us in the little book of 1 John and verse 28, and he tells us that every single one of us is going to meet the Lord one of two ways. We are either going to rejoice in his coming or shrink away from him in shame. If Christ appeared right now, would you be rejoicing in his presence or shrinking away in shame? We should be looking forward to that day and living our lives in such a way that there is nothing but peace in our soul in the presence of our Savior. Nothing to hide. You say, why? Because we become sinless? No, because we become honest. To be honest with the Lord is to be open to his scrutiny and observation through the scriptures. We lay our lives open before him like an open house. There are no hidden closets. There are no rooms that are locked. He has access to every area of our life. We have nothing to hide. We honestly and openly confess our sins to him on a daily basis. And therefore, there's nothing to hide. You know, when you have told it all, you have nothing left to hide. It's open and honest and you're free. It's not that we confess to him and then he 
tells us that we're going to go stand in the corner like I spent most of my early education as a grade school kid. All right, Cunningham, over in the corner. If it wasn't the corner, sometimes I made so much trouble in the corner, I had to go out in the hall. <laughs> go stand out in the hall, and there was a coat closet, and a couple of times my teacher had have me stand in the coat closet. Well, I didn't mind that because I was separated from everybody and I've always been a bit of a loner and so I just find things to do in the coat closet and I thought, this is great. They're all out there trying to learn arithmetic that I don't like anyway and here I am in the coat closet. I told you kind of the dentist, the menace, you know, the Calvin and Hobbes guy. Well, that's, I think that guy studied my life when he wrote that comic strip. <laughs> Nan said, amen. <laughs> Verse 15, notice, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation for those who have not yet come to Christ. And then he says, if you really want to understand this, go to the expert in end times events. You know, the Apostle Paul is the one that God blessed and graced with the most insight and understanding, with the most revelation about end time events. And what Peter is saying is, if you really want to understand these things, go study Paul. Look at the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. Look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. He talks about standing at the judgment seat of Christ. He talks about wood, hay, and straw versus gold, silver, and precious stones. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the things that we have done, whether good or evil. That day is coming. And so he describes it. He talks about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He comes back to the rapture of the church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He assures his readers and assures us that we are not going into the tribulation. I know there are preachers out there telling you we're in the tribulation. The four horsemen are running across the earth. You've got to be kidding me. This is nothing for, to compare to what's coming. Yeah, we're on the brink of it. Yes, the world stage has been set. We're still in that marvelous church age. And so don't let people lead you astray. And the best way to do that is study the Apostle Paul. Peter says, study the Apostle Paul, our beloved brother Paul. By the way, beloved brother, who is this? In Galatians chapter 2, Paul records how in the church of Antioch, where there were a lot of Jewish as well as Gentile believers, Peter had come from Jerusalem to visit the church to give, as it were, his seal of approval as the head of the Jerusalem church. And while he was there, the very rigid group from James showed up at the door of the church. And here they are having a big fellowship dinner. And you know that according to the law, it was contrary to the law of Moses for a Jew to eat the food of a Gentile, to even eat with a Gentile. And here's Peter, and he's chowing down on ham sandwiches and everything else and having a great time. And the de delegation from James shows up at the door, and all of a sudden, he spits the food out of his mouth, stuffs the ham sandwich in the trash, and goes and sits with the Jewish faction of the church. And Paul tells us all about it in Galatians chapter 2, and he said, I had to call him to account in front of the whole church. Even Barnabas became a hypocrite. And Paul said, I rebuked him before all because he was to be blamed. 
He said, if we as Jews trying to keep the law couldn't save ourselves and had to come to Jesus Christ in a simple childlike act of faith, how can we turn around to these Gentiles who have never lived under the law and try to impose the law on them? Paul said, if I turn back to what I left behind, I make myself a transgressor. And what he was saying was, I left that all behind. The old covenant before the cross, we call it the Old Testament, the old covenant was done away the day God ripped into that veil in the middle of the temple. It was done. It was over with. No more sacrifice. No more rules, regulations, demands. Now, I do realize there are many Christians who choose to live according to a lot of the old Jewish custom. You know what? If that is your way of showing your love for the Lord, that's wonderful. Don't impose it on me because I ain't going to do it. I will not live by rules and regulations. We live by the Spirit. We live in the liberty of Christ. Not liberty to sin, but liberty from sin to enjoy, as Paul says, all things God gives us richly to enjoy. Have you ever thought about what that means? God gives us all things. He wants you to enjoy everything that he's given you, but enjoy it within reason. Enjoy it within restraint and enjoy it in the company of other people. That's the best way to do it. Notice that he says, our brother Paul, our beloved brother, that same guy that rebuked me in front of a whole church and embarrassed me. According to the wisdom that was given to him, he has written to you. I told you that I would tell you why I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. This is it right here. Because we know from the introduction to 1 Peter that the people Peter is writing to are believing Jews in Asia Minor. And here he is telling us that the Apostle Paul wrote to believing Jews in Asia Minor. And if the book of Hebrews is not that book, then we're missing a book of Scripture. And I think there's good reason that Paul left his name off the book because for many reasons there were a lot of Jewish attacks against him because they hated the liberty with which he lived. They kept wanting to drag him back into the demands and rules and regulations of the law and he refused to live that way. Take it for what it's worth. I take the book of Hebrews as being written by Paul. Verse 15. Consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As our beloved brother Paul has written in wisdom to you. As also in all of his epistles. Speaking in them of these things. In which some things are hard to be understand. Those of you that have been with us. Isn't it interesting after working our way through 2 Peter chapter 2 that Peter says Paul's hard to understand? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. A chapter in which there are over 30 personal pronouns that you have to work out. We, they, them, there, referring to three different groups of people as I showed you. And you go through the 30 of them and your mind is so tangled you're saying I'm not even sure where I am. And then not only that, but you have within the second chapter something like 20 words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And not only 20 words that are never used elsewhere, but seven or eight more that are only used one other time, some of them only by Peter. This is why some people say, well, Peter couldn't have written this book. 
Well, Peter wrote the book. He may have had a secretary writing it. Most of the authors of scripture used what they call an amanuensis. We call it a secretary, and they would simply dictate the words. The secretary would write it down, and you may not be real flowery, such as with the person that wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is one of the most brilliant authors that we have in the entire Bible. An absolutely brilliant man, a meticulous historian, and a man who was able to write in flowery Greek language like only an extremely highly educated man would be able to write. That's why as Bible students go into Bible college and they begin their studies in the Greek language, they begin in a book like the Gospel of John or 1 John because it's written on about a second or third grade level. Very, very easy to follow. You say, oh, well, then John would be a really simple guy to understand. Yeah, try to wrap your mind around this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and His life was the light of the world. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Word, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared it. <laughs> simple, simple terms. You know, the early church called Paul the missionary. You know what they called John? the theologian, a man who could speak in second or third grade language and yet just explode your mind with concepts so deep and so great. Notice that he says in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of scriptures. The phrase, the rest of scriptures, now puts the writing of Peter, the writing of Paul, and the writing of all of the apostles on an equal standing with all of the Old Testament scriptures. It's really an amazing statement that he gives here. So if we're going to live our lives in this crazy time in which we find ourselves, my friend, how are we going to make it count? Well, he wraps up his book. He's been telling us God has called us to salvation, to service, to growth. God has called us to fight against false teaching and false thinking and even false living. How can we wrap up a book that is so filled with all of this as we look to the past, we look to the future, we come back to the present, here we are, this is where we stand, what do we do? Well, he wraps it up in two verses, and these two verses tell us, don't fall down, keep growing up. So very simple. You therefore, beloved, never forget that every time the word beloved is used in Scripture, it's an expression of the love of God for you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us that we are accepted in the beloved. Who is the beloved? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his beloved son. It is Christ. And every time God calls you beloved as a child of God, he is saying, I love you like I love my own son. When I see you, I see in you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
I know my friends because I've done it. It is so easy to get so overwhelmed with our own weakness and frailty and faults that we constantly are beating ourselves down and beating ourselves up. But every time we see that word beloved, we need to remember something. When God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Uh, there was a lady, my, the first trip I ever made to Australia, a lady came to me and she said, I just, I, I, I just don't know if I'll ever make it to heaven. And I said, have you trusted Christ? Yes, I have, but I failed so much. And I said, your failure has nothing to do with it. It was settled at the cross. I know, but I just keep beating myself down because of things I've done in my past or things that I'm doing in my present or whatever. I finally took her to Ephesians 1, 6, and I said, do you see that statement? You are accepted in the beloved. And she said, yes. And I said, that means when God sees you, what he sees is Christ first. After I came back to America, she sent me a letter and she signed her letter at the end. Accepted in the beloved. She got the point. And it set her free from all of the self-condemnation that she had been living under. And it's a marvelous thing. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, be alert, be vigilant, watch out, lest you fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. What is he warning about here? Go back to chapter 2, the false teachers. He's saying it's possible for you to be led astray. It's possible for someone to deceive you. It's possible for someone to come along with a lot of letters behind their name, with a lot of intellectual and academic achievements, and in high-sounding words, but full of hot air, lead you astray with some area of diversion and deception from the truth of God's word. It could happen to me. It could happen to you. How many times have we seen people, there were two great evangelists who started out at the same time. One of them, you know, is Billy Graham. The other one, I can't even remember his name. They were both having about equal success. They were both drawing large crowds. And somewhere along the line, because of his own sin, because of his own self-condemnation, I don't know, one guy dropped out and gradually drifted away from the faith until finally he come to the conclusion there is no God. It can happen to you. It could happen to me. We see it often happening to men who have preached the word, studied the word, and yet what happens? They get led away with the error of the wicked. I would actually prefer to translate this being led away with the error of the wicked one. The wicked one, because he is always on the prowl. As Peter told us in the first epistle, he walks about as a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour he wants to destroy your life, my friend. God wants your life to be rich. He wants it to be full. He wants it to be filled with confidence, with assurance, with joy, with something to offer the people around you. The enemy wants to rob you of all that. Remember what Jesus said? He's a thief and a liar. A thief, a liar, and a murderer. He comes to steal. He'll steal by lying, and by lying he is going to Take your life from you. 
Don't be led, led away with the error of the wicked. Well, how can I make sure that that never happens? It's very simple. Keep growing in grace. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what he's done? He's taken us right back to the beginning of the book. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. To knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly love, brotherly love, love for all around you. Keep on growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you and I will keep our nose in the book, if we will keep our heart filled with the word, if we'll keep our head stuffed with the truths of Scripture, we'll not be led astray. We're not going to be robbed. We're not going to be cheated of our destiny. We are going to fulfill the purpose for which God put us on this earth. At the end of your notes, you actually have some valuable resources. I put down there eight resources that I used in the course of studying through Second Peter. I would encourage you to look those over and you may find some resources in there that you would want to get. But I want to conclude with a prayer and the prayer is a prayer someone sent to me a while back, and it's the prayer of a Puritan. Join me in prayer, as, and you've got it in your notes, so you'll be able to review it later. If you want, read along with it. This is going to be my closing prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights, hemmed in by mountains of sin. I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, and that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the well, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. And I conclude it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may that prayer become a living reality for each and every one of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much.